Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present an encore presentation of Carmelite Conversations. Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Uh, today, we are going to continue a series that we began a couple weeks ago, actually, on Titus Bransma, a blessed and a Carmelite, albeit from the ancient observance um, and before we do that, let me say hi to my co-host in the studio with me here today, Francis Harry. Francis, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great, feeling very blessed. And how are you, Mark? <laughs> I'm doing well. I, I uh, feel the need to sort of uh, set the stage for our conversation today with our audience and remind people that we are, of course, in Lent. And it's a good time, I think, to reflect on both the desert experience and sometimes the trials and the tribulations that God brings us through. Because in today's conversation, I think as we get through the middle stages of Titus's life, we're going to see some of the most uh, significant trials that he had to face, some of the real dark moments, uh, his experience at the hands of the Nazis, and uh, some of the uh, the very uh, real uh, darkness that he, he had to go through. But we're also going to see his reaction to that and how he held on to uh, the virtue of hope in the midst of that. You said it, I think, when we spoke a few weeks ago, and it's so uh, well said that he himself could be uh, characterized as a witness to hope. And I so enjoyed reading this book, um, Encountering God in the Abyss, which is about the spiritual journey of Blessed Titus Bransma, um, especially reading it during Lent. Um, because as a witness to hope, a prophet of hope, you know, it helps us to see that even in our own darkest moments, wherever they may be, and we all have those challenges, uh, varying degrees, of course, um, all specifically set up for our benefit, right? Because we know God allows and permits things to happen for our good. So uh, to read Titus Bransma and to reflect on his uh, the depth of darkness in the concentration camp prison and how he dealt with that is just extremely moving. Yeah. And so, again, I, I just want to maybe warn our audience uh, that tonight we're going to deal with some of the darker moments. But at the same time, um, I, I encourage you um, somewhat like reading St. John of the Cross. You know, there are those dark moments. There are those uh, dark caverns, if you will. Uh, but there's a light here at the end of the tunnel, and so stay with us through uh, through Titus's life experiences. I think uh, the events of his life themselves are very uh, very revealing of the Christian experience and his constant reminder to us to uh, go to our interior and to seek God. And we're going to do that right now as we begin our conversation uh, the same way we always do, and that's to begin in prayer. And I selected this from a private novena prayer to Blessed Titus Bransma. So I want to invite our listeners to uh, put in your heart right now, you know, recollect yourself, put yourself in God's presence, and bring into your heart a specific intercession, a specific request that we want to ask from the intercession of Blessed Titus Bransma. So in the name name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, your servant, blessed Titus Bransma, labored zealously in your vineyard and gave his life freely because of his faith in you. Through his intercession, I ask for your mercy and help. Father Titus never refused when he was asked for help by your people. In his name, I come to you with my needs. 
Lord, help me always to imitate the great faith, generous love, and burning zeal of blessed Titus Bransma. Glorify your servant as he strove to glorify you. Mary, Mother of Carmel, pray for us. Blessed Titus Bransma, Carmelite martyr, plead for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, Francis, I just want to quickly pick up on a quote that we read uh, the last time we spoke about Titus. And again, as I say, uh, that would be a couple weeks ago, I think, if you're looking in the archives for that particular conversation. But I want to use it as a launching pad into this uh, image he uses of the garden. And of course, uh, we know how rich the image of the garden is for us in Carmel. Um, and, and it relates, of course, to the Garden of uh, Gethsemane and so many other uh, analogies we could draw, but just quickly, um, as the impending uh, doom of the Nazi uh, invasion is beginning to circle around uh, Titus and his country, and and he seems to be, as I think I said last time, prophetic in knowing what's happening, he, he says these words, if a person becomes inwardly conscious of God's presence in the ground of one's being, and if one opens oneself totally to him, he will make himself felt in the work of the heart. He will shape us into a new human being. And this is the experience that Titus is about to enter, which in effect forces him to the realization of what he had so prophetically uh, pronounced um, before the Nazi invasion, and that was the fact that we would only find, his countrymen would only find their stability in God, in a deep interior dwelling. And the analogy he uses, the imagery he uses, is that of a garden. Francis, I know you have some thoughts on that. Yes, well, you know, because Titus is a philosopher and a realist, and particularly because he's a Carmelite, he understands that, you know, the garden uh, often refers back to paradise, which means, the, uh, the actual word paradise means the garden. And so um, in Carmel, we often think of the Song of Songs where the bride is yearning for, to find the bridegroom. And St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross um, also see the soul searching, uh, touched by the mystery of God's presence and thirsting for him, so looking for him. So um, when we think of this garden, we, we realize there's good and bad and beautiful and ugly. You know, we've got the beautiful flowers, but we have thorns. We have weeds. We have rambling uh, vines. And um, yet we, we have much that is good. And just as in true life, uh, we have good and bad and <laughs> ugly and beautiful all mixed together. But uh, Titus was saying we need to turn our heart into a garden and we must make our heart in, into a caramel. So how to... Uh, look at this external beauty of the garden as an interior reflection of the soul. So he talks about the deep moat and the high wall. And I have to remember, do you remember which book of St. Teresa of Avila does she talk about a moat? Do you remember? No, I don't. Uh, interior castle. Okay. Yes, interior, because the, right. in the yeah. moat, guess what's in the <clears throat> moat? It's those lizards and vipers and snakes and all those things. That, and they represent evil, mm -hmm. uh, temptations, and things that are going to pull us away from God. So Titus says, yes, we're going to have the deep moat, but we're also going to have the high wall. And the wall is representative of our trust in God. So if your trust in God is so deeply rooted... You have this strong wall around you, and you can then withstand anything. So it's the soul being immersed in God, in the abyss of God's greatness. But in that wall is this gate, 
And of course, that is a place that can be a very vulnerable spot. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, who are we going to let into the garden of our soul? And sometimes we let sin in. Sometimes we let temptation. But really, we need to think who and what do we admit through the gate? And really, we should only admit what pleases God. And Titus has a quote here. Uh, This is from later in his life when he's begun to experience some of these trials. He says, the purely good can never be realized. It is always mixed. Ambiguities and enigmas will always remain. Uh, Constant Stoll goes on to say that is Titus's view of world history, unlike that uh, of others who see criminality and suffering and question God's justice. Titus doesn't do that. He recognizes Christ even tells us in Scripture uh, when he when he holds back, uh, uh, you know, the angel in the in the story that he's writing about the wheat and the weeds. And he holds back and says, no, we'll we'll damage the good with the bad. And so we're going to wait for the harvest. And this is the reality of both human history and our individual experience of life. And and, uh, Titus Bransman knew this mixture of weeds and wheat very well in his own life. And those were, as Francis said, some of the things that the world may bring into our life, Satan may bring into our life. And unfortunately, as a result of sin, we may bring some of those weeds into our life and they will grow together. They will uh, foster together. Our objective, of course, is to try to minimize the uh, the uh, uh, growth of the of the weeds and purify our hearts as a process of transformation, which in karma we do largely through prayer and the sacraments. We know that. Um, But we have to see in the example of our lives, uh, God working on us to help us overcome uh, those weeds that are part of our own soul experience. And those weeds and stones, you know, really, those obstacles are really opportunities, opportunities to become stronger, brighter, more fulfilled by the mercy and grace of God. Uh, I just want to mention a couple of these flowers that were brought up in this um, book about Blessed Titus Bransma, because we're in the period of spring right now, and we're thinking of uh, Lent leading to this Easter resurrection and growth, and And so, you know, he mentions the sunflower. And, of course, the sunflower directs its petals following the sun. So as the sun rises, the the head of the sunflower is looking right there at the sun. And then it follows it through the night. And I've grown sunflowers, uh, even six-foot ones, and and have watched that. And it's very neat. But it's also uh, a sign to us that we must always have our eyes on Christ and follow him throughout the day. And then he talks about the lily, of course, the image of a pure disposition. The rose, which is the image of love, but also can be an image of wounds. You know, roses have thorns. And then the humble daisy or the whimsical sweet pea, which has to be guided. And so do we. We need to be guided. But, you know, there's many colors. There's many perfumes. And they all complement each other. They're not there for themselves. And I remember Therese saying, you know, what would the garden be if it were all just roses? You know, its beauty comes from its variety. And so just um, as the garden has this variety, so do our souls, a variety of virtues. And these virtues give clarity and color and perfume wherever we are to those around us. And it helps to make life pleasant and trustworthy. Well, you you know, Titus um, capitalizes on the very point you just made, that we are not here for ourselves. 
Constance Toll writes that Titus was so imbued with the consciousness that human beings do not belong to themselves that his attention always spontaneously leaped out of him in whom we move and live and have our being. Of course, referring to Christ, his life was so deeply imbued with the indwelling of the Trinity and with Christ living within him that he didn't he didn't look to himself in these uh, difficult circumstances that we're going to elaborate a little bit here, but instead looked across the garden of flowers and tried to see the beauty in what was around him, not to get mired in uh, the, the trials and the challenges of his own circumstances. And that was in a very important disposition yes. uh, to have, especially uh, as the circumstances uh, that he eventually was um, exposed to became increasingly challenging for him. And the last point I wanted to make about the garden is that Titus sees this garden as a mysterious gift, a spark of the divine. So the next time you're out walking around and you're seeing the flowers blossom, see what it speaks to you spiritually. Because I, I remember one Carmelite meeting where Mark, our my dear co-host, he brought out the fact that everything materially can represent something spiritually. And that really spoke to me. And and the garden is a great example of that put into practice. So when we see the garden, look at it as the spark of the divine and see how it uh, reverberates within your own souls. Because we're always going to have the good and the bad in our lives. And so what we do with it is the challenge. And, you know, if we do it by ourselves, we're probably going to mess up. But well, if we do it with God, there's a chance that real growth will occur. Well, and one of the things, um, again, that Titus stresses for us is uh, this idea that weakness reveals the mystery of the human person. Weakness and, and uh, decline unmask our self-invented human image and lay um, aside our brokenness of existence. This is a benefit to us. We have to see our true condition. We have to be able to accept it. And the Lord does this very slowly and very deliberately, but he'll only do it to the extent that we can accept it. And quite frankly, the only way that we get to a condition that we can accept it is to be imbued with grace, to be imbued with the strength that comes through prayer and contemplation. And we might you know, struggle with the realization that as we pray more, sometimes we become more uh, aware uh, of our true condition. And this can be very disconcerting, but it is how the healing occurs. You know, that, that we need to see the doctor and we need to understand uh, what may be causing the pain or the difficulty or the sleepless nights or what have you. And it's the same thing in the spiritual world. Our condition needs to be revealed to us. It's only revealed to us through grace, through the mercy of God. And we gain access to that grace and mercy through prayer and, of course, through the sacraments. So go smell the flowers. Stop and smell the flowers. That's my little tweet. <laughs> well, in addition uh, to all of his um, uh, priestly responsibilities, later in his life, Titus uh, served as a spiritual advisor to the Roman Catholic Association of Journalists. This is where, unfortunately, uh, the tide began to turn in terms of his um, exposure to the Nazi party. He had been very involved in Catholic education, uh, served as a spiritual director uh, for uh, organizations related to the expansion of Catholic education. 
Um, and uh, as was quite typical of Titus, he jumped into his new assignment now as the Roman Catholic Association of Journalists, uh, Journalists Spiritual Director uh, with both feet. He began to learn not only the business of journalism, uh, but he also began to advocate for the continued freedom of the press, just as he had done for education. And isn't it interesting, Francis, uh, these two branches of society, the press and education, are most often the ones that regimes, um, uh, oppressive regimes, attempt to gain some control over. Oh, you know, it's, indeed. It's through the education system and obviously through uh, the voice of the, uh, of, uh, the media uh, that oppressive regimes, and of course we can cite the, the cases throughout history, uh, will try to gain control. And these are the very areas where Titus was directed uh, because of his deep philosophical understanding of the value of these two mediums, uh, because of his uh, own academic grounding, uh, and because I think, as I said before, he was somewhat prophetic in understanding the signs of the times that he lived in and knew uh, that these were going to be avenues through which uh, the Nazi party would try to gain control. Well, I'm so glad you brought up this philosophical bent and its connection with education and also journalism and the media, because I think his foundational philosophy here was very important. He labored so that journalists and others could make independent judgments that they personally were equipped to that end and could see through the sham and everything that is associated with it. That was his goal in the study of philosophy. And that's also why he said in the secondary schools they should study philosophy. And I thought, oh, geez, wouldn't that be great if we could, you know, get back to philosophy so, you know, we're not deceived so easily. Um, and then he said it, it was a great struggle and a special responsibility of the f- press and for freedom of speech to have this kind of grounding so that you're not deceived, so that you can put aside what is false. To him, it was a matter of justice, the justice which has always had been the core of messianic expectation and which could never be completely codified. And it took a lot of courage. And, of course, you're swimming upstream here. But he had this idea image of a man. It was a person who was able to live and think independently and maturely and who has acquired so much respect for life and so much inner freedom that he is receptive to the hidden signs of God's presence in this world. And I'm like, ah, oh, no wonder he is so good for Catholic schools and for media. Uh, God placed him and we really needed him, and we still do today. And this, I think, was the message he was trying to get across again to his countrymen, uh, that the only way they were going to survive the difficulties that they were about to undertake, and he wasn't blind to the fact, was not for them to try to redefine political structures or redefine the political message, or um, they were inevitably going to take to arms, and uh, unfortunately, uh, we know that that didn't work out well for the Dutch, uh, but he was arguing that the only way they were going to survive is if their interior life was matured, if they understood their relationship um, to God, if there was a communication, constant communication with God. Uh, Titus um, uh, was warned, in fact, that his efforts would land him in trouble with the authorities. He knew what was about to happen. He resisted all efforts to get uh, um, him to curtail his activities and take a safer path. He knew he would not remain a free man for long, but as Francis just described, he was well prepared for the role that he was about to take on. He was well prepared for the difficulties uh, that eventually would lead to his uh, uh, be, being taken captive by the Nazis and eventually put in prison. Of course, we know he died in Dachau uh, prison, but 
Um, he was trying to communicate a message which is so vital for today, and you and I, Francis, spoke before we came on the air today uh, at how this book and how this person's life uh, touched both of us so much. And I think for me what was most compelling is this message grounded in sound philosophical teaching and education, but a message of an interior awareness of the presence of God, which allowed him to overcome all the circumstances that were presented uh, to him throughout the difficulties in this stage of his life. Now, I know you said that, but let's not let's not think that this was easy for him. You know, um, he he knew it was coming that he was going to be arrested. He saw that. And yet he pursued what he thought was the true thing to do uh, in justice. What was God's plan for him? But when he first got in there, he, he really did think he would be released at some point in time. Uh, but over his time in the prison, he saw, um, you know, clearly that, you know, in the end, you know, that was not going to happen. So he has to go through some very internal struggles here. Yeah. Um, some genuine despair and darkness. It comes out in a poem that he writes later. It comes out in uh, some of the uh, writings that came from his cell. And we're going to introduce you to a, a couple of other folks who had similar experiences and, and talk a little bit about what um, they went through. But you're absolutely right. This is genuine suffering. This is genuine darkness. This is bitterness. This is a man, and, and the book brings this out, I think, so well, uh, that Perhaps what was most challenging was here is somebody who had been uh, very active. We said that. He jumps in with both feet. He's now actively working for the church. He's working for the advancement of Catholic education. He's working in journalism. He's working in all these different fields uh, in addition to his teaching. And then all of a sudden, late in life, his life is simply cut off. Right. You know, uh, and he embraces this. Um, you know, he he's sent to prison and he has this quote that we're, we're going to tell you now i'm getting what i rarely had and what i've always desired now i'm going to a cell and will finally become a true carmelite so he's reflecting back on his first time in a cell um when he was joining carmel and then after he went through his novitiate and all his formation then he's out there and they're putting him to work in all these different places and so he's missing this cell so now that he's arrested he's gonna you know tweak it to his benefit oh you know i get to be in the cell again so at this point you know it's a very positive thing um so and he says a cell locks a man he says a man i'll say a person a cell locks a person in on all sides and leaves them alone for a long time a time of bitterness without consolation and then it goes on but for titus a cell was a place where the hours no longer hold sway over a person where there is timeless silence and where god's world totally envelops him it is the focus of a mystic who, in his mind's eye, sees another order. And this is what, uh, certainly initially, uh, the cell experience did for Titus. Uh, it gave him that opportunity, as Francis said, to get back to practicing uh, what he had so longed for in his early stages as a, as a, a Carmelite, and that is the simplicity and the silence and the solitude of living the interior life, which he was drawn to. Um, it won't stay that way, but nonetheless, this was his initial experience when he was uh, um, first taken captive by the Nazis. But, you know, to his benefit, he's taking this uh, philosophy of his into the cell with him. And the most characteristic attitude of a philosopher is that he wants to understand what he sees. He wants to separate appearance from reality 
and he does not want to be misled by external impressions. He therefore is always in search of truth and keeps asking himself how he can find it. So now you have him in the cell, and you know he, he could not find support or comfort in his past because uh, his past is is beyond. And now he he's in this moment. He's living in the present. And I think it's interesting that he takes a little piece of paper. He takes two pieces of paper, and he writes a little message on each one to help be his little motto. And on one piece of paper, he he wrote down this quote from The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akimbus. It says, A cell becomes sweeter to the degree it is more faithfully inhabited. Faithfully inhabited, right. As opposed to struggling with that reality of... Uh, being enveloped in the cell. Yeah, so this is embracing the cross that that has been put upon him. The second piece of paper uh, was a little text that he took from St. John of the Cross, and it was, To Suffer and Be Despised. And I'm like, oh boy, didn't that come true? Yeah, and those are the uh, de- uh, demeanor, uh, the, the uh, mindset uh, that we have to begin to adopt in dealing with the trials and the challenges in our own life. Not that we, we simply comply or that we become discouraged or, or, or suffer despair, but rather we embrace that cell, we, we um, accept it, and we seek what is given to us in it, which in Titus's case and in his words to us is a deeper interior experience of the living God. And we're going to share that and some additional thoughts from him and others when we come back after this break. A reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll be right back.
listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you're currently listening to is a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations. Welcome back to Light Conversations. And I want to say quickly a, a thanks to all of our Carmelite listeners, uh, Carmelite Conversation listeners who uh, we know, Francis, participated in large numbers in the recent Radio Mariathon. Yes, thank uh, you. Which allowed us to reach our goal. I'm sure that many of you have heard this by now. We were successful uh, in achieving the goal that we set out for. Uh, so I thank you personally for that, because uh, I do know uh, that there were a number of uh, Carmelites who uh, who participated and supported us. And I wanted to remind our listeners what book we're using as our main resource. It's Encountering God in the Abyss by Constant Dole, D-O-L-L-E. And, and as long as you said that, Speaking of bookstores. Yes. I want to uh, <laughs> uh, just send out a quick uh, message on the reopening. Many of you in the Dayton area will know this uh, by now, but... That's uh, Dayton, Ohio. Dayton, Ohio. For all of our... Intercontinental yeah. <laughs> listeners. Uh, the uh, the old Veritas bookstore has uh, been reopened under the name Catholic Books and Gifts uh, in its original location, and we'd like to encourage all of our listeners uh, to please uh, frequent that bookstore and and give a vote of confidence. And uh, the new owner is doing all that she can to restock and and resupply, and we want to support her in every way we can. We need good Catholic bookstores across the country and across the world, uh, so please uh, support Catholic Books and Gifts here in Dayton, Ohio. Appreciate that. All right, so now we're going into the significance of the cell, and, and the cell now being a prison cell, and and yet within that uh, material uh, enclosure, uh, he can still find a freedom um, uh, a boundlessness. Yeah, you know, we've talked about this so much, Francis, and we'll, I think, uh, talk about this into our grave because of the importance of this idea, most especially for the Carmelite order. It is our very history uh, to speak about the cell. It was Elijah's cave, which was the first cell for yes. Carmelites, uh, followed up by the brothers uh, of Mount Carmel yeah, uh, well, dwelling in their own caves. And then in the center, they had the oratory, which they came together at. Right. And then moving, uh, of course, uh, uh, later to Cyprus and then eventually back to Europe, uh, the monastic uh, um, uh, element, the uh, aromatic uh, aspect of our of our uh, order remained in that the importance of the cell was emphasized. Of course, it's not unique to Carmel, uh, but it is uniquely important, I think, to Carmel. And here's what Titus Bransma had to say about the cell. To stay in one's cell means to seek out the silence. To be by yourself in the silence and the gentle interior light attention for one's own inner self awakens and grows. The cell is an image of self-reflection. Many, however, do not know the road to one's inside. It means withdrawing from the circle of people on occasion, and that's a, a, a poetic uh, license on my part, uh, from the pleasures of conversation, from what fascinates, disturbs, and confuses a person. Titus Bransma, in this regard, lives in his own inner world. He creates an inner world, Francis, because the world around him has now become quite chaotic. And he knew from uh, the very early stages of his life that this inner world was what he was called to in a deep contemplative way, his aspirations for uh, mysticism, his writing, the history of the of the mystical experience in the church. This is where he belongs. And he's saying to us, it's where we all belong, and not as a, a form of escape. In fact, it is a form of 
power. It is a source of energy. It is his means of dealing with the reality of his circumstances. Yes, because although he's in the cell, he's not alone. He knows that God is present there with him. And, you know, he can enjoy that presence even more now because he's not going to be distracted by the world outside. But, you know, we're each called to that solitude and silence within our own hearts, with our own interior selves, to find and have this encounter with God within. Now, Constant Dole says um, of Titus's experience of this cell, this is not something we can receive as a matter of course whenever we decide. It transcends us. It cannot be reached by one's own strength. So we ought not to think, Francis, that by some intellectual exercise or some mechanism uh, of the mind that we can create this cell. It is something we dispose ourselves to through silence, through solitude. And as uh, we just read, we do have to withdraw from the world. We do have to put away all of those things that distract us. Most especially, I think we have to withdraw from the things that um, affect our faith and our hope and our love, the critical virtues to this. And by going interiorly within to be with God, that's where we find true joy, true strength, because it's not ours. It's God's working through us, and then we can embrace it and share it with those around us. Now, ironically, in Titus's case, it was the very pain of the experience that he uh, was was uh, moving into now. And Francis read a little bit about how he prepared himself with the two uh, pieces of paper. I want to just uh, take another quote from Constance Dole regarding the strength that he drew from these pieces of paper. Uh, the piece of paper on which were written those few dark words about suffering make clear that suffering was a reality for Titus. And we said that earlier. This was not something that somehow he uh, magically overcame. It was his reality. Or philosophized, you know. <laughs> it was it was the true experience and how he dealt with it. It was a reality which occupied him with the realization that suffering would bring him closer to God. And I think that's the important point here. And that's his suffering. And that's something we can all embrace when we have suffering in our lives. This is an opportunity to have an encounter with God. Constance Stoll acknowledges in these words, he says, the words are radical and they're hard to understand. What can this mean? They can only be spoken by those who have tasted a sublime form of the experience of God. They remain enigmatic, difficult to understand, difficult to grasp. For those who do not know this experience, it is the very pain which divests a person of everything that makes him unfit to be touched by that love. It is pain which a pain, rather, which also remains because our human shortcomings and life's contradictions always make themselves felt. Now, Francis, this is exactly what we talked about in his analogy of the garden, that we are always mixed with, you know, the good and the bad. And it is the very bad that the things that we fight against and we resist against the difficult circumstances in this case that Titus has been placed in, not by his own fault, but simply by the political uh, circumstances of his time, which become the source of a deep deeper intimacy with God. And, you know, there's a, a quote, those who do not experience their wounds cannot arrive at true spirituality. I mean, you have to know who you are and who you are in relationship to God. And that quote came from Herman Andreessen, which is in this book. But, yes, we've got to know our woundedness. We need to come to grips with what caused it, uh, where we fell, uh, where we turned away from God, where God was in it if it was imposed on us. You know, where is he calling us to be? Maybe our our sub 
sublime spiritual mission is to be the presence of God in a place of darkness, which I think was Blessed Titus's call. You know, I'll share an interesting analogy that I was um, engaged in uh, a conversation over uh, just last week with somebody, and, and I was thinking about and reflecting on Christ's woundedness, and I'm talking about after the crucifixion, the wounded body, of course, is placed in the tomb, and Scripture tells us that Joseph of Arimathea came with a 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe, which were used to treat the wounds. And you might say, well, why was that necessary? Well, of course, uh, I, I don't Jewish pretend tradition. to know. Yeah, Jewish, tradition Jewish burial tradition. The body. But, but here's what's interesting. It, it's the way that myrrh is extracted. It actually comes from uh, um, specific trees in, in the Middle East and, and, and a few select uh, countries there. Um, and the way that it is uh, harvested is that the tree that emits a resin, which later becomes the, the myrrh itself, is wounded. They literally describe it as being wounded. And through that woundedness, it emits this uh, resin, which then gels and becomes a source of healing. Mm. In and of itself, it becomes a source of healing. God and is so, so good, isn't he? <laughs> so it is through our very woundedness, um, uh, listeners, that we do find this healing. We resist our woundedness. We resist the, str- the struggle and the trials in life. That's natural. That's human. But it is through embracing those and embracing God in the midst of them that we can actually heal. It it has to do with the role of love and how love itself is the only means for healing us. And it's it's certainly the development of a compassionate heart within us, but it's also the mixture of grace and mercy that brings about our own healing. Think about this in your own experience. If you are focused on your own trials, your own tribulations, your own challenges, how quickly are you drawn out of that when perhaps a child of yours uh, then comes to you and they're hurt or wounded or a parent calls and says, something's happened to me, or a dear friend calls and says, oh, you won't believe what just happened to me. Yeah. And that immediately draws us out of ourself and we begin to experience that compassion and kindness and patience and love ourselves in the midst of witnessing suffering that in and of itself seems to dry up our own woundedness and healing. Yeah. And I often try to remember that, you know, when I'm down and out, I try to think, okay, somewhere in the world, there's someone that's had it worse than me. You know, it kind of opens up my perspective. I'm not alone in suffering. God is with me and others have it far worse. So, you know, embrace this um, and try to grow from it. There's a very powerful quote, I think, from um, Eddie Hillisman, who was actually a neighbor of Titus Brandsma's. Now, Titus was older than her, uh, and it is speculated by Constant Dole, the, the author, that they would have at least encountered each other. Their houses were only a few um, uh, doors apart from each other in the neighborhood that they grew up in. That's Titus and, and this Eddie Hillisman, um, who also spent time, she spent time, in uh, Auschwitz, right? In in Auschwitz, that's correct. And she has this quote from her own diary. The threats from without are becoming ever more serious. The terror is mounting by the day. I am drawing prayer around me like a dark protective wall. Remember when we talked about the wall of the garden, that protective wall? (laughs) Perfect, right? In prayer, I withdraw as into a monastic cell and then again step outside stronger and more collected. So the strength again is coming from that indwelling within the cell. So seeing the cell as a protection. For me, this withdrawal into the closed cell of prayer is becoming ever more important and also necessary. This inner concentration builds up high walls around me. Again, your analogy, Francis. Walls within which I find myself, again, out of all the distractions, gather myself up into a single whole. 
I could imagine there will be times in which for days on end I lay on my knees until at last I felt the protective walls come to stand around me, walls within which I could not fall apart and lose myself and die. You know, that's so important uh, when, you, when you're in this kind of suffering to, to find a way to be grounded and protected. So she is talking about the cell, this interior cell, as being a form of defense against the horrors of the world gone mad. There's another very interesting story in this book, which I confess, and Francis, you shared with me as well, that you were not aware of uh, from a famous world leader, a former uh, leader of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, who many of you probably know was uh, assassinated in the 80s. But um, Anwar Sadat, who himself was a, a very religious man, had this uh, almost mystical, I think we could say mystical experience of having been a prisoner, political prisoner, uh, for a number of years and, and his life being threatened. And we won't go through the history. It's Interesting, but uh, unfortunately we don't have time for it. But what I would like to do, Francis, is have you read, ironically, you, I read the women's part, so you, you can read the man's part. His experience in a cell in Egypt, his political uh, years as a political prisoner before he later became the leader of Egypt. He said, it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon when I found myself inside cell 54. I looked around. It was a completely bare cell, except for a palm fiber mat on the macadamized floor, hardly big enough for a man to sleep on. For 18 months, I lived in that cell, unable to read or write or listen to the radio. One of the things Cell 54 taught me was to value that inner success which alone maintains one's inward equilibrium and helps a man to be true to himself. No man can be honest with others unless he is true to himself. Inside cell 54, as my material needs grew increasingly less, the ties which had bound me to the material world began to be severed, one after another. My soul, having jettisoned its earthly freight, was freed, and so took off like a bird, soaring into space, into the furthest regions of existence, into infinity. I have to say, that reminds me of St. John the Cross, and is talking about mm-hmm. the one thread that holds you bound. And so Anwar Sadat is talking about being freed. Once released from the narrow confines of the self, with its mundane suffering and petty emotions, a man will have stepped into a new, undiscovered world, which is vaster and richer His soul would enjoy absolute freedom, uniting with existence in its entirety, transcending time and space. In that period, I was initiated into that new world of self-abnegation, which enabled my soul to merge into all other beings, to expand and establish communion with the Lord of all being. This could never have happened if I had not had such solitude as enabled me to recognize my real self. It was genuinely a conquest, for in that world I came to experience friendship with God, the only friend who never lets you down or abandons you. So here we have in this uh, this reflection from a famous world leader, again, his prison experience as a political prisoner, the exact same experience that Titus Bransma is suggesting that we can encounter 
by this indwelling, by this uh, living within the cell, which accompanies, accompanied with it are a few things. One, Francis, the idea that we have to come to realization of who we really are. We yes. have to face that. And that's a difficult thing in and of itself. Um, but the and, sooner the better. <laughs> and doing so, we then come to a deeper understanding of who God is. And his... his uh, a discussion here about uh, losing space and time and and uh, entering into infinity seems so much like what we read about in near-death experiences and not making an evaluation on near-death experiences. But we know in metaphysics there is a reality beyond the reality that we live in. And the only way that we enter into it, and it is available to us listeners every day, this is available to us. God is inviting us into it. But let's be honest, uh, as Francis said with regard to Titus, there is a difficulty, there's a challenge, there's effort that has to be made on our part. We can't make it happen, but there is a responsibility and effort. Sadat's experience links up with the ancient wisdom, which the Desert Fathers talked about, uh, a brother asking an old monk, Moses, to give him word that would help him, uh, heard these words. The old man simply said, go sit down quickly in your cell. Your cell will teach you everything. <laughs> and again, we can't, we, I, I don't know about the rest of you. I don't have a cell in my backyard as much as I might like to. But you have a cell interiorly. <laughs> but I have an interior <laughs> cell. And we all do, and we can all dwell there. And we all need to make the time to do that. You that's, know, that's the message here. I, I want to point out two living examples uh, today uh, that are, are good examples of how to deal with life in the cell. Um, Captain Guy Gruders, he is uh, a POW of five years in the prisons in Vietnam, and he is a motivational speaker. Uh, he has an incredible story, credible witness uh, about forgiveness. Um, he has a website, www.guygruters.net, and his story about his conversion uh, experience, his experience of God in the deepest horrors of the Vietnam Vietnamese uh, prison camps uh, will really bring tears to your eyes, and I think some of that is online as well. The other one is a Father Gordon McRae, who is a, a priest falsely excused in the prisons for over 20 years now. Uh, keep trying to get him out. Um, he has a blog called These Stone Walls. And I often think, you know, God's got him there converting souls. Uh, and it's just amazing to read his blog. So, um, I mean, if you want to get an exi- an idea of, of how these people are dealing with this kind of suffering, this kind of uh, being imprisoned, uh, you know, it helps you appreciate your freedom, but also the work that we have to do, each of us. Well, and that it is not a unique story. Titus's uh, message to us, of course, very powerful in his own life, having um, you know, uh, brought uh, great credibility to what it is that he does have to teach us. It's not a unique story, uh, a very powerful story, but nonetheless, we are all not called to a, a prison experience, but we are all called to uh, dwell in the interior in the midst of what we all experience as the difficulties of life. And, and I think. And, and to encounter God. We're all called to holiness, right. all called to be perfect, all called to be God's own. And it's that presence that we find in there. When we are. Um, brought into the situation, either forced in the case of uh, Anwar Sadat or or uh, Titus Bransma, where we have no choice but to dwell in this interior if we want to maintain our sanity. Francis, you were going to read that quote about the importance of maintaining sanity, and I think that's important. I don't know if you 
if you um, have that uh, uh, aside. But oh yes, uh, here it is. Yeah. Um, it says great mystics have therefore always viewed suffering as a way to become transformed in God, a means of breaking down our resistance with a view to delivering ourselves up to the incomprehensible reality of God's creative love. In this love encounter with God, we discover within ourselves forces of which we were previously unaware. Thus, human logic breaks down and we begin to see suffering as a source of power and hope. In submitting to this concrete form of suffering, Titus Bransma discovered how it brought him much closer to Jesus. And what a what a uh, terrible irony, I guess, in some respects, that it is through our pain and suffering that we gain our greatest strength. But that's true. I mean, that's the mercy of God, that in the midst of our most difficult trials, we actually have the opportunity to gain strength. And in fairness, uh, there are those who, in those circumstances, grasp at life. They want things back the way they were. They want their circumstances back. They want to be back in control. And isn't this the message of Titus, that I had to lose control. I had to give up. I had to abandon. I had to to acknowledge that I was not the center of my universe. Yeah, and that God was the center. Abandoned into God, not into nothingness. (laughs) And only there did he find this strength that we're talking about. Well, he reflected on some of this uh, strength that he drew in the living presence of God in a poem that he wrote. Finally, he says the strength, uh, Constance Stoll says the strength of his attitude came through in a poem, a poem with which he struck the theme of his imprisonment in which he expressed himself very personally about accepting the circumstances of his condition. Yes, this is a beautiful poem and we used it as a prayer of one of the previous programs on Titus. Let's pray it as we Um, hear this, pray it. Oh, Jesus, when I look on you, my love for you becomes more true. And yours, I know, will never end. You see me as a special friend. This calls for courage on my part. But pain is a blessing for my heart. For pain makes me become like you and leads me to your kingdom, too. I feel true blessing in my pain. Such suffering for me is gain. For what will your providence, excuse me, for what your providence will do is make me one, my God, with you. Just leave me in this cold alone, although it chills me to the bone. No visitors, no one to see. To be alone is good for me. For you, Lord Jesus, are right here. I never felt you quite so near. Stay with me, with me. Jesus, sweet, your presence makes my joy complete. You know, Constance Dole, reflecting on that one uh, uh, four-line uh, segment where he says, I feel the true blessing in my pain, says this is the point at which Titus truly freed himself from the attachment to self-preservation. What a profound theme that is, this idea of our attachment to self-preservation. You know, we're in effect taught this through all of our life and most of our our human experience is one of self-preservation. But here in the spiritual world, we've got to be able to understand the need to give ourselves over completely to God and give up uh, that that desire for self-preservation through which we find the liberation of man. Mm-hmm. And and uh, Titus, or, I'm sorry, Constance goes on in reflecting 
on Titus's life in this cell. He says, Titus Bransma did not merely experience the insanity of the world around him in which he landed. Amidst all this violence, he encountered another, an inviolable reality, that being the love of God. Big, big, that's big, the love of God. (laughs) It is only religious experience that opens our eyes to this dimension. In the midst of all the pain and suffering, he remained deeply conscious that God was there for him and loved him. Thus he lived in the awareness that his life was rooted in God, not in himself. While the ground sank beneath his feet, he found a foothold in the hidden depths of his existence. This realization gave him an inner peace that was inalienable. Whatever happened, God was closer to him than he was to himself. In this central core, external suffering could not touch him. For Titus, this was not a temporary emergency solution. For this was extremely an extremely threatening situation, since this realization was also the sustaining power of his existence in his earlier years. And that's the message here, Francis, is this doesn't happen to us overnight. We don't get thrown into difficult circumstances and all say, well, all of a sudden we say, well, I guess it's time for me to start living that interior life. Titus had practiced this from his very earliest days, certainly uh, once he had entered into his vocation and understood the importance, even in the midst of his busy life, uh, to create that interior space, which then became his source of strength as the circumstances around him slowly deteriorated. And in this Lenten season, as we approach Palm Sunday, not too far away and in, in Easter, uh, I, I found it very important, uh, this quote from Blessed Titus. It was from a Passion Sunday in 1921 when he wrote the prophetic words. So this was before the prison. Let my soul be a shroud in which the people put you to rest. May the image of the Lord put its imprint also on it so that I will always remember how Jesus loves me. Oh my gosh. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, we, um, uh, unfortunately, Francis, we always run out of time. (laughs) We have to have another program, right? Because we have, we we have more talk to do about this interior cell, don't we? I think we do. This is somebody who's worthy of certainly another conversation. I'm going to ask though, in the midst of, uh, uh, that conversation that, uh, uh, we would, um, would call on Titus Brandsma to help us now in this hour deep in our Lenten journey. And I'm going to ask Francis to lead us out in prayer to do that. And, and also keep in prayer all those who are imprisoned, all those who are even in the prison of their own souls, stuck in addictions of whatever kind or in tragedies. So uh, lifting them up to the Lord in, in this Lenten period and, and always, of course. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God our Father source of life and freedom. Through your Holy Spirit, you gave the Carmelite, Titus Bransma, the courage to affirm human dignity even in the midst of suffering and degrading persecution. Grant us that same spirit so that in refusing all compromise with error, we may always and everywhere give coherent witness to your abiding presence among us. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you again for joining us on Carmelite Conversations. We'll be back again next week with a special guest, and we look forward to having you with us. Until then, God bless.
listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations.